Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 12 verses of John chapter 2 as you open your Bibles for that. Uh, I, I enjoy in my spare time reading. It's an uh, introvert's delight to be able to get into a good book and escape for a while. And uh, one of the things I enjoy reading is biographies. And so a few years ago, I decided to read a biography on every president of the 20th century. I started with Teddy Roosevelt, and I went all the way through. At that time, it was through the end of uh, one had been written about Clinton, and I read through that. And I was intrigued to find out that the first 100 days, historically, I didn't know it at that point, but the first 100 days of every presidency is measured by the historians as to whether or not there was a clear vision a clear purpose. Whether you agreed with it or not, the first 100 days makes a statement to the world, this is what this presidency will be about. And each book that I read talked about the first 100 days, which led me to believe that anything that's going to have a great impact is going to have a great statement. So I began to look, and if you look historically at great pieces of literature, let's see, let's do a little quiz this morning. I'm going to give you the opening line of a great piece of literature. You tell me if you know the book. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities, Dickens. Call Me Ishmael. Herman Melville's Moby Dick. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan, there you go, nice. Uh, In in a hole in the ground lived a hobbit. All right, good, okay, so good. We know our literature. That one made you happier than I wanted it to. Okay, all right. And then, because I love music, I thought some of the greatest songs ever have great, clear opening lines. Let's see if you know these songs. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, now go, cat, go. All right. Blue suede shoes. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. Oh, you all blushed. Righteous brothers, you've lost that love and feeling. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Sound of silence. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Close to you. She was more like a beauty queen from a movie scene. (laughs) Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. See, some of you quit in the 60s, I noticed. Okay. (laughs) And then Tommy used to work on the docks. Living on a prayer in 1986, Bon Jovi. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is no good music has been written since 1986. That was my whole point with this thing. Now, all of our music, the opening line combined with writing or the lyrics or the music makes a statement. It reminds us that this is that. And I tell you all that because we're going to be looking at the inaugural act of Jesus publicly where he makes a statement. It's his first 100-day statement. And Reynolds Price, a Duke University English professor, said, if you were inventing a biography of Jesus, you would never invent this to be your opening statement. Let's read the text. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. When he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize it where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wines first and then the cheaper wines after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. I think it'd be really easy for us if we're looking at this text to focus so much on the miracle that we forget what the miracle was saying. And so I want you to hang with me. Here's what I want you to remember for the rest of the morning. The first miracle of Jesus reveals more than his power, it reveals his nature. And if you get stuck on just the power, it's just water into wine. I know I can't do that, but that's all it is. But if it reveals his nature, there's something in the water into wine that you and I need to know. Timothy Keller suggests that this is almost a parable. Although it happened, it's a parable because it acts out who he is and what Christianity is going to be about. So I want to focus just very briefly as we overview this text. I want to focus on two things. The first is this. From this we learn who he was. There's something revealed about Jesus here that's significant. Outside of water into wine, it's revelatory about him. Just look back with me at verses 8 and 9 in your Bibles. He said, draw some water, take it to the master of the banquet. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. What is this master of the banquet? Well, uh, you might say in our culture, it's the equivalency of a wedding coordinator. Someone who makes sure that everything goes as it should, that everything is run as designed, and if there are any problems, those problems are taken care of. The master of the banquet would have done this. He was to keep things on track. He was to make sure that the food and wine was appropriate for the family. You see, the wedding celebration in Jesus' day was the celebration of the community. A wedding was a big, big event. Uh, It wasn't a little private thing. It was a big public thing in the community. It said something about the family. And the length of a wedding uh, celebration and the banquet that went along with it could go anywhere from one day to seven days, depending on the wealth of the family and their prominence. So the question of the morning is, why would Jesus create 120 to 180 gallons of delicious wine in order to turn a dying party into an incredible party? And here's what I want you to see. Because he's the master of the banquet. Now, he's not the master of the banquet for this wedding. Well, he will be. But he was never intended to be. But he carries himself. He is the master of our banquet. And this is what's being revealed. Remember what I told you, the master of the ceremony would make sure that everything went as it should, would provide everything of excellence for his guests, and provide them a great experience. So I ask you, do you not see that Jesus is the master of your banquet? He provides everything you need, he keeps it on track, so that you can be blessed with his very best. He's revealing who he is. In fact, Isaiah chapter 25 tells us, verses 6 through 8, on this mountain, this is a prophecy, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will swallow up death forever. 
The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. If there's one thing that I wish for us as we go through this gospel series, as we look at this journey of discovery, the one thing I wish for every single one of you, and if I can say it honestly, most of all me, is to have a renewed sense that Jesus is not a killjoy. Jesus is not a hall monitor telling you to stop running and quit having fun. He's not that teacher with the crooked finger going, stop it. He's the master of the ceremony. He invites us into a celebration. He invites us into the very best, the richest of food and the choicest of wines. Jesus is not here to take away our joy. He's to teach us what real joy is. But we live in a world that has Jesus as a cosmic killjoy. If you look at the expressions that people use about Christianity, most Christians fall into one of these categories. I've just got to suck it up and survive. I'm just trying to make it. Or just say no. And that's the script for most Christians. Just, if it's fun, don't. Which is ridiculous. You can laugh at that. That's okay. Some of you go, I don't know if I can laugh. Laugh. Some say, I just need to stay out of trouble. My whole life is just to stay out of trouble. I've been in so much trouble. And you probably have. But most of us think if we just want to be saved from hell, then this is the way it is. It's going to be horrible until we get to heaven. And I want you to know that the gospel doesn't tell you that. The world does. The gospel says there's joy in the kingdom right now. So we learn who he is. He's the master of the feast. And then secondly, we learn what he came to do. And this is the part, when I was doing my research for this particular passage, it was back in December, and I had some time, and I was uh, working ahead, and I started pulling up some commentaries and some articles and some of my favorite writers on these texts, and my tail started wagging. I couldn't wait to get to this Sunday. And I'll tell you why. Because when I began to understand what was being revealed in this text, previous to what I thought I understood, I became excited about being a believer. I became motivated to realize that the kingdom of heaven is not a punishment. It's not a dour, dark experience. It's full of life. And to use Isaiah's passage, it's full of the richest of foods and the finest of wines. It's a good banquet. See, I want to remind you one more time that the first miracle of Jesus reveals more than his power. It reveals his nature. When wine goes out at the party, in the days of Jesus, the party ended. Now, that didn't mean they were drunkards. Please don't misunderstand. Due to the quality of water and several other issues, people drank wine regularly. It was good for them to drink wine. But when the wine was gone, it would be like tonight, when you run out of wings, they might as well end the Super Bowl. Can I have an amen? I mean... It's like when you have a good strawberry shortcake, you want to make sure you have one strawberry remaining with the last scoop of ice cream so that you can end it the way it ought to be. So when the wine ended, the party ended. Now, what we don't know is why Mary was concerned about it. It's very possible that this was a family member of Mary's and that she was serving as a hostess of some form. But she felt responsible enough when the wine was gone to go to her son to say, is there anything you can do? And what does Jesus say to her? This is one of those direct statements that Jesus makes that we go, whoa. And I have to say to my boys, well, I don't have to ever say it to Alex, but I have to say it to Brayden occasionally when he talks to his mother, check the way you're talking to her right now. You don't speak to your mom that way. And he's like, well, I said, you can talk to me that way because I'll smack you. She won't. Don't talk to her that way. And he gets this little smile and says, okay. 
Well, Jesus says to her, woman, why do you involve me? Now, if your translations say, dear woman, that's not in the original language. And the reason I point that out is not to say Jesus was rude, but to point out that he was being very, very direct. He said, woman, why do you involve me? My time's not yet come. And this is one of the insights that I gained in my study. I didn't realize this, but every time John quotes Jesus with the word time, it's alluding to his death every single time. And there are multiple examples of this in the book of John. So whenever you're reading the gospel of John in our series, and Jesus says, my time has not yet come, he's alluding to his death. But he says to her, and this is the thing that always caught me off guard. I used to think Jesus was saying, I'm not ready to do a miracle. Or mom, don't make me get up and sing. You know, one of those kind of mom incidents. Where it's like your mom says, oh, you can sing, get her up there. And you're like, stop. But you have this moment where Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. But then he immediately does the miracle. Now, most would think, well, that's a good Jewish mother. She got what she wanted. No, actually, it's a little bit opposite. You see, Jesus never did anything accidentally. He was very calculated. He was very purposeful. Would you agree? Jesus didn't waste time or energy. He did what needed to be done. He did it extremely well, and he did it so we'd learn from it. So he says, woman, why are you involving me? It's not my time. But then he turns around, and he performs the miracle. And what I learned is this. There's two points. Jesus will be married one day. You see, at this wedding, what he realizes when he says, my time has not come, or has yet come, is that he'll be married one day. The Old Testament tells us through the prophets for hundreds of years that God simply does not want to relate to us as owner and slave. Although many of us perceive that that's our relationship with God. I work for him. It's not owner and slave. God doesn't just want to rule us. He just doesn't want to dominate us. He he calls himself the shepherd of the sheep because he's pointing out that we would be lost without him. But that's not the depth of the relationship he wants. He just doesn't want to be a man overseeing these thoughtless animals. And he wants it to be more than father and child. If you look at the Old Testament imagery, what God has been pursuing with us is why we call Christianity a relationship is because he wants to relate to us as a husband relates to a wife. And this imagery is found throughout scripture. Jesus is called the bridegroom so many times in the gospels. In fact, uh, in Matthew, when someone says to To Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus responded with, do the friends of the bridegroom fast when the groom is here? No, no, they fast awaiting the groom to show up because the groom would leave his home. He would go to the house of his bride and he would collect her and with her family, they would go to the groom's house. It would symbolize so many rich uh, imageries. And so he says, when the groom is on his way, They prepare. But when the groom arrives, they what? Celebrate. It's not a dour thing. And so it even says in John chapter 3, which we'll get to in a few weeks, John the Baptist is told by his disciples, everybody's leaving you and going after him. And John has a great response. He said, yeah, because the groom's here. And the bride is here for the groom. I'm just a friend. Paraphrase. So you can see that this bride concept in Revelation 21, verses 2 through 3. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. At this wedding, Jesus knew that one day he would be married. 
And the one thing that he was thinking about is the second point. Jesus will be married one day, but his wedding won't be a party. It'll be a sacrifice. So when he says to his mother, my time has not yet come, he understands what his wedding will be like. He understands the price that he'll have to pay. You see, in John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 12, John chapter 13, Jesus refers again and again and again and again and again to his time. So Mary says, we need wine for the wedding feast. And Jesus says, it's not my time to die. He knows that the only way that he'll ever receive his bride is through his blood. And Jesus will always equate wine with blood. And you can see it as you study more and more. That there's something at a a deeper level of what's going on here than him simply turning water into wine. But he sees over to his side, verse 6, six stone water jars. These were ceremonial washing jars. They would have been full of water. And when people walked into the area of worship, they would wash their hands and their uh, hands and their faces so they could go into the presence of God, having cleansed themselves from their filth. It was both literal and figurative. And he sees these six purification jars, interesting term. And Jesus is the master of the banquet. Seeing those opportunities, seeing those lessons right in front of him, he says to them, fill those full of water and fill them all the way to the rim. Between 120 and 180 gallons of wine, it's perfect. One preacher said he was probably remembering that God through Moses turned the water of the Nile into the blood as a curse. Jesus would turn water into wine as a blessing. You see, the wine is his blood. In Luke 22, 20, he even says on the night of his betrayal, this cup of wine is my blood. And the wine would have an imagery of cleansing. So here Jesus is, sitting in the midst of the joy of a celebration, sipping sorrow. While everyone was enjoying the good wine, Jesus was tasting the bitterness of the wine, knowing that this was a foreshadowing of what he would do for all people to establish the kingdom. I think if I'm going to say one thing during this journey through the Gospels, more than I say anything else, it will probably be this. We must release ourselves from considering Jesus to be a robot. It was not easy for him to do what he did. It was a sacrifice. He wasn't just going through the motions knowing "Eh, everything will be perfect. He knew the pain that was going to come upon him. And when he took those cleansing jars and he turned them into wine, he knew that his blood, the wine of the new covenant, would cleanse every single one of us. Can you see it? You see, this is, reveals more than his power. It reveals his purpose. See, what he came to offer us is that he is the master of the banquet and he is the groom. The master of the banquet is continually pushing us to have a sensory experience with him. It's not just a mental thing. We're not just to believe a stuffy, restrictive set of beliefs. We're not to walk around and have four or five things that we believe are true with no experience of them. We are to be in a celebratory, festive moment, knowing 
And I was thinking just all week long, how do I connect that? That's a, that's a statement I believe to be true, but it doesn't have that tactile experience. So how do I relate to you what I'm talking about? Over and over, what I get is Jesus doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He wants us to celebrate the feast, even in a period of famine. And then I realized that I did my taxes this week. And the federal government and the state owe me money. And I don't have that check yet, but I am spending it as if I do. Are you with me, church? In my head, most of it's already designated out. We're going to do this, and then we're going to fix this, and then we're going to put this in savings, and we're going to do this. And I don't have the check in my hand, but I'm living as if I do. Are you with me now? How many of us are living as if the kingdom of heaven is in full payment right now instead of us waiting until we die to get it? Because if you're not living in the reality of the availability of all of God's fullness right now, we have misapplied and misunderstood the gospel. Jesus turned those purifying jars into wine as a statement of what his purification can do for the great feast. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see the Lord is good. And then he's the groom. You see, when he says he's the groom, I think about this. When you come to a wedding, now, if you're the parents of the bride and groom, then you're all antsy, you spent a lot of money, you're probably broke, and you just are happy it's happening. But if you just come to a wedding, most of the time, it, we're worried about what kind of cake will they have? And how long will it take? And we come in and we see the beautiful bride, but I get the choice spot. I stand up front next to the groom, and I watch him shake. I see grooms that their friends are making fun of. Oh, they're really funny standing over there. But when they come right here, they lose their minds. The last two grooms that I've done weddings for have teared up when they've stood next to, the, to me waiting for her to walk down that, those steps. And then I look and I see the father at the back door and he's devastated because he loves that little girl and she's no longer a little girl. And I see this moment and then I hear that Jesus is the groom And I hope you'll go with me emotionally here. I think Jesus shakes with anticipation for the day he gets married to us. He came for that purpose. To not engage us just as a shepherd, just as a rule giver, just as a king and a lord. He came to become our groom. He came to marry us and enter into an intimate relationship with us that overcomes Any relationship you have, I love saying in every wedding ceremony that I'm asked to do, I love saying this line, that there is no more depth of intimacy can be found in any relationship in the world than a marriage, and a marriage that honors God. You can have a great relationship as a parent, and it's fantastic. You can have a great relationship in friendship platonically, and it's fantastic. But when people come together and become one in the presence of God, nothing will go deeper or further than that. Please hear me. Jesus is the groom who's offering you a relationship that will never end and will take you into depths you'll never have any other place. If Jesus becomes a list of rules... If the church becomes a place that kills your joy, then we are misappropriating the gospel. Because Jesus came as the master of the ceremonies, as the master of the banquet. And how many parables and how many teachings of Jesus refer to go into the alleys and the byways and invite people to my what? To my banquet, where we'll have the richest of foods and the choicest of wines. The first miracle of Jesus reveals more than his power. It reveals his nature. 
It's both actual and parabolic. It really happened. And it'll happen again. And this is what he wants us to know. I want to challenge you to receive him as he is. I, I, I challenge you. I know that in the olden days, at the invitation, at the end of a ch- church service, we'd ask you to come down front. And what I think is amazing, when I do weddings, what do we ask the bride to do? If she still wants to marry this guy, then come down front. And I'm going to challenge each and every one of us. Will you come into the presence of your groom? Will you enter into this relationship again and again and again? You know, when I look at this, I think there Jesus was sipping the sorrow in the midst of the joy so that you and I could sit in the midst of a sorrowful world and sip the joy of the new kingdom and offer that beautiful wine to whoever we encounter. You see, the lead is not buried. We look at this opening act and we think that's not very substantial. That's not very powerful. That's not very magnificent. And now I'm corrected. It's beautiful. It's very revealing. He is the master of the banquet, inviting us to be a part of it, his kingdom. And he is the the groom, inviting his bride to enter into a relationship with him that will go throughout eternity and will take us to the depths of all of our greatest joys and hopes. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus who came. And this is his kingdom. Are you a part of it? Are you committed to this relationship in all of its fullness and in all of its beauty? Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.